Hi, welcome to Steve Race True Crime Podcast. Uh, delighted uh, to welcome uh, Shane Taylor. How are you, mate? I'm good. Thanks for having us, Yeah, thanks for coming on, mate. I've watched uh, a lot of your podcasts uh, over the over the last couple of years. Fantastic story, and um, as always, nice to get someone on who has has essentially been on a journey. Um, you know, turned to crime. But then, you know, come out the other end and has got a positive story to tell. So that's that's the, the point that, uh, that I would like to make on this, that there's always a way out. There's always a way of changing your life. And, you know, Shane is a testament to that. But let's let's go back to the start, Shane. Where, where were you born? Where were you brought up? Well, I was I was born in Middlesbrough, but my mum had the flea uh, from Middlesbrough for me, my dad. And so she ended up in uh, Peak Lee in County Durham. And uh, I sort of grew up there and just sort of got picked on and bullied a lot when I was around there all the time just um and I didn't know at the time but the family I was in was sort of the family I, my mum had married into so I always I just didn't feel like I sort of fitted in I always felt like I was not loved as much as everybody else and stuff like that and obviously as I got older I started to realise that the people weren't my real family but I just remember feeling like always feeling like I was just not loved and on my own and then everyone would pick on me and take liberties out of me and what I mean by that is like if I was like they'd get me through the windows in the houses and then if I scored loads of money they'd give me a tenner and give me a slap and take the rest and stuff like that and just got picked on constantly and in the early 90s I don't know what it was like anywhere else but people in the early 90s was massive for joyriding and stealing cars and burgling houses and I just fit, just went in with all the lads. Everyone did it. So to me, as a kid, I'm talking nine, ten, maybe younger. Everyone's doing that around me. So I just thought it was normal. It was actually, I was about 12 or 13 when I actually started realising that what I was doing was wrong. And I didn't even care then because I, I was too far into it and loved this. And I just remember pinching. All we could steal at the time was mini metros because we were that young. It's sort of the only ones we could sort of snap. And uh, we'd just fly, pinch cars, go from a state to a state, drive through to Newcastle, drive through to Sunderland, burglar houses, pinch cars. And, you know, it's one of the things I'm ashamed of, you know, burgling houses and, and stealing people's cars and that's a bit scummy, really. But at the time, I just, it was fun. I was doing it for fun, not realising the damage I'm doing to people and, you know, going in people's houses and invading their space and how they're going to feel after that for years. And that just didn't enter my head at the time. And I just remember going down that route and just, that's all I did. Constantly pinching cars, stealing, getting arrested. Couldn't do anything back then in the 90s. It's not like now. If you're under a certain age, now they can put you in prison and stuff. But then all they could do is put you in foster care You'd go to your foster parents and then just run off and go back home and then back to square one again. So the, the police were sort of like, couldn't do nothing. And that's, did that, did that, did that. And I just remember getting picked on. But I had an uncle, he wasn't rock hard, but to me he was. But he was always fighting, he'd always have a drink and he'd always fighting. And he had a bit of a name for being a bit of a fighter. And so to me, I loved him. He was like a god. And I remember I used to walk down the street, my hands out, yeah, I'm with my uncle and stuff like that. And uh, I kept burgling, pinching cars and hearing of him having a fight with such and such and hearing of him. And I remember saying to myself in my head, and this is mad, but I never thought it was going to happen. 
I just remember thinking, one day, everyone's going to fear me. I'm sick and tired of people picking on me. I'm sick of feeling not loved. I'm sick of feeling alone. I'm just, one day, I'm gonna, I've, I've had enough, and I'm going to make sure when I walk down that street, people walk across the street from me when I walk down. Because I had a... I watched too many gangster movies and I had a twisted mindset of what a gangster was. Uh, a gangster now to me is someone who's loaded, makes a lot of money and is powerful. To me, I thought if someone paid me on the estate, that meant I was a gangster. Pathetic, really. But that's what I believed at the time. And so I remember saying to myself, I'm not the best of fighters in the world. I'm game. I come to a point where I was game for fights and I was up for fights and I wouldn't back down from anyone. But I started to think to myself, I'm not the bestest fighter in the world. So how do I make them avoid and fear me? And I, and I just thought, you have to have a mindset to kill. And if they kill you, let them kill you. But if you haven't got the mindset, if you're scared of a life sentence, if you're scared of doing any, like, anything like that, you might as well stop. And so from that moment on, I set out on a, a rampage and just went around trying to, trying to kill people and stuff like that. It's interesting, remember, it's interesting you point out, you know, sorry to interrupt you, you point out videos, and that's something which has been talked about many, many times in, in the media, on discussion programmes. You know, I remember in the 90s, you know, Robert Kilroy Silk, uh, for example, used to do a morning chat show and he used to say, are, are you know, videos um, influencing our children? Then it became computer games, you know, fast forward to the noughties and it was, oh, is Grand Theft Auto something that's getting into our children's mind and making them become bad? Do, do, you, do you really think, I mean, obviously, you know, you suffered a bit of trauma in your life with, with your upbringing, but do you think that influenced you as well? Definitely. And, and not just influence me, but give me a... Um... A full sense of what it really what it really is. So two films I watched constantly was a couple of two pack ones where he's in his soft tops and I used to think, oh, I want to be in a soft top, I want a big chain, pathetic. And but the biggest one was Goodfellas. And there's a scene in Goodfellas where the man they're killing a man and he's in a boot and he's still alive and he's banging and he pulls up in the car and they open the boot door and he runs over and he starts stabbing him. And then the other one shoots him. That impacted my mindset that I would watch that. And you, you might think I'm joking about 30 times a day. I would replay and replay and replay it. And I would just get this rush. And obviously mental health comes into play as well. But I got this rush and my hairs would stand on end. And I'd say, yeah, I want to be a gangster. I want to kill people. And it's just pathetic. And, and that's due to watching these videos, watching all this stuff, and it just, it, it definitely played a role. It's not the main role, and it's not one role, but it's one of many roles in my life. But it definitely, definitely played on part of my life, definitely, 100%. That's a, a, uh, yeah, fascinating, fascinating that to hear that, and that's, you know, coming straight from you. Did you did you go to school? I mean, you, you're joyriding at 12 and 13, you're running the streets, you're running a mock, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're burgling properties. Did, did you actually go to school, Shane? Well, I, when I was going to school, I remember having an incident when uh, I, I'm not saying I wasn't diagnosed with having dyslexia or anything, but for some reason, my mind wouldn't register what I was trying to learn. 
And I remember one day, the teacher, I remember I couldn't learn something and he was trying all different ways and he, I just couldn't get it. And he went, are you thick? And the whole class laughed at me. And I remember after that thinking, that's not happening again. So what would happen after that if I didn't know how to do my work? I would just pick up the chair and bounce it off the teacher. But it wasn't because I wanted to, it was because I was scared. I'd rather have the class laugh with me than have the class all laughing at me. And so I just would lash out like that. And then eventually I went to a, a boarding school for naughty kids called Elmore Hall. <laughs> it's meant to be for naughty kids and you can't, you're not meant to be able to get banned or anything from there, but I got expelled from there, excluded. Um, when I was in there, there was a lad who we thought was a bully. He was about 15, 16. We were only, we were a lot younger. And so we ran away with him one day and I thought, I got all the lads and said, how should we beat them up? And they were like, yeah. So we ganged up on and beat them up. And we, do you know when you go into a frenzy and you just, you just go to back where and you don't realise till afterwards. We absolutely destroyed them. Uh, we chucked them in a pond as well. Uh, flipping, nearly flipping, no, could have killed them. And then he, I got caught and expelled from that. And I went, to, I went to court for that, but I was so young at the time. They, they couldn't really do now for me, apart from giving me a few orders or put me under a, in, in care or foster care. It's all I could do. But it was, and then from there, I'd never, they stopped. There was no one come looking for me for skills, no truancy people or nobody, everybody, they just give up. Everybody just stopped. They knew it was just a no-go. It just wasn't happening. And then, uh, yeah, after that, it was just crime. Crime, 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 crime every day. Getting a, and then I was in and out of uh, foster cares, in and out of North Allerton Prison, in and out of, uh, like, the young offenders, Deerboat, North Allerton, all them places, Weatherby. And it was just a cycle through my young life, six months in, two months out, seven months in. It was just my whole life in, in and out. Can you, remember the yeah. first, can you remember the first time you got caught by the police? Yeah, I, I remember the first. I can't remember the first time I got caught because it was... Uh, there's too, there too much stuff, but I can remember the first time off the police, I mean, but I can remember I, I, the first time I actually got caught pinching. And it was in the swimming baths in Peter Lee at, at the top. And uh, me and my mate saw that, that like, there used to be boxes, didn't there, and all the pound coins would go in. And it was full to the brim, but it had a little gap and we could see it was full. So we went and got like a screwdriver thing and popped it open, filled out our pockets up. And we're going around the swimming baths getting all the sweets out the machines. And the, the man came, caught us, and we were <laughs> crying our eyes out, proper screaming, please don't ring the police. And he let us go. And, like, when he let us go, we sort of, like, ran off laughing, and, ah, you know, swearing at him and that and buzzing because he let us go. And that was the only time I remember. But after that, I just, it was just a blur. Just, I don't even know. I just know I was arrested for burglaries and twats and robberies and whatever else I could do. What was your attitude towards the police? I mean, I presume at that time it was you, you were shrugging your shoulders. You didn't really care. The enemy, they, they at the time, they were just enemy to me. I just I was brought up. That's it. They're, they're enemy. Don't speak with them. They're scum, and because they were arresting me, you know, you, you just have a, a wrong frame of mind of what they're for, really. But just protecting people, but at the time I, I wasn't having none of it and I hated them. And I just remember, actually, I remember this how much I hated them. I remember as being a kid, 
And I remember getting, I was doing an aggravated burglary and the police come. And I remember they caught me, collared me into this, into this corner of this garden. And I had a knife, a nine inch kitchen blade down the, down the back. Anyway, they got me and they knew I always carried knives. So they, they searched me straight away and pulled the knife out. And he went, ah, you just tried to stab us, have you? So I went, no, I never. And anyway, to long, short, long story short, goes to the police station and there's a statement from the police officer saying I tried to stab him. So I went on the interview and when I was on the interview, I just said, uh, they said, uh, why did you try to stab him? I said, I never. And they said, oh, but he said you did. I said, I'll tell you what then. I said, I never. I said, but from this moment on, I'm making a promise to you that one day before I die, I'm going to kill the police officer. And they both looked at each other and they were like, you don't mean that, do you? I went, no, I mean it. I said, you've made me an enemy now. I said, you've set me up. I said, I did not intend, I did not stab that officer, try to stab the officer. I said, but because of that, I'm going to. And next time, uh, at some point in my life, I'm going to make sure I end by killing a police officer. And that's, uh, and that sort of, I ended up getting charges and that got brought down as being serious, obviously, saying things like that. But this is, you're talking like I'm talking 12-year-old or something, 12, 13-year-old. And I basically, my life just basically, uh, yeah, just spiraled from there, really. I hatred for the system beyond belief. Screws as well, prison officers. And in fact, my... It was that, the hatred for the system was that bad that I didn't even like the ambulance service or the fire brigade because the government paid them. So because they were paid by the government, they were my enemy too. How, when I look back, I just, I feel like I'm just absolute idiot really. But just when I look back, the way my mindset was, I was in this one, one man army willing to go out to war with anyone. And if they kill me, go to do me a favour. And if you, if, you, if, you, if you don't, then I'll kill at least... As long as I kill at least three or four years before you get me, I'm happy. That's all I used to think like. Pathetic. A lot of people turn to, you know, turn to drugs, they turn to drink. Did you have any addictions like that? I, t- I um, suffered... I was mentally ill. And so in my head... I always thought that everyone was out to kill me. So I was constantly, at the time, constantly training, constantly keeping myself super fit, on edge, thought the world was out to get me. That was my sort of, if I took a drug, I used to take drugs every now and then, but it would just send me paranoid even more. So and I, I would sit there and think, I'm wrecked. What if someone tries to kill me? I, I won't be able to defend myself. And then I would go into a panic and freak myself out. And then I'd always go on a downer on my buzz and stuff like that. So I would constantly just be training. That's all I would do. Drugs weren't part of making me do, do what I was doing. Obviously, the crimes escalated. Things got worse uh, for you. Um, I, I mean, the violence especially was something, as you've already said, you, you know, it, it didn't bother you. I mean, looking back, did you ever come up against somebody who who was your, who was your equal or, or, or who you feared? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lad who's... Uh, there's, two, there's two Michael Galeses. So uh, 
uh, from Hartlepool. One of them, he, he's not a tough lad at all, but there's a Michael Gales who's an absolute nut. Uh, there's people from Hartlepool who know who talk about. Well, Michael Gales is probably the first person I came across back then. What made me think, whoa, you know, everyone says you'll make your match and you're not the only daughter. Because I used to think that as a kid, no, no one's mad at me, I'll kill them all. But this lad, we had an incident where we end up in the middle of Hartlepool Town Centre. He's one of them big, tall lads, just big built. You'd think, you'd think he goes to the gym training, but he doesn't. But he's big lad. And uh, I remember we had an incident, we brought the Hartlepool Town Centre into a standstill. Um, it ended by him pulling out a mash hammer, them square hammers, the, the, the little handled one. And we ran together, ran at each other. He smashed me across the head. We just saw sparks. And in that time, I had a, a nine-inch kitchen blade. And I stabbed him um, four inches through the top of his head. It went in the top there and come out somewhere around here. But the crazy thing about him is the knife handle snapped off. And he pulled out the blade with his own hand. And he went, I'm going to kill you when I get you. And I have to admit, there was that little bit of flipping out, who's this? Who is he? And so I went back to my town and started saying to people, go get yourself to people, find out who this lad is. And it, they were coming back, it was all coming back, like he's a nutter mate, he's absolutely nutter. And this is how I know how much of a nutter we both were at the time. When I got arrested in Hartlepool, I got arrested by CID. I'm in the back of the car, and the CID said, uh, he said, uh, he's a proper nutter, girl, like Gales, we, we hate arresting him, he's an absolute psycho. Said, uh, if I didn't have to arrest you, though, I wouldn't. Said, because I hate, we hate him, but we've got to do what we've got to do. And he, he was just saying, like, look, we said, we did a little bit of research on yourself, so you're just as mad as him. So, you know, and this is what they were saying to us. And then I just sort of basically... What happened with that case is after I stabbed them through the head, I'm on the run for attempted murder. When they arrested me and went in, there, was, there wasn't any evidence at the time. Do you know what I mean? Like, they had to bail me under an investigation. So while they bailed me under an investigation, I had to go back in two or three weeks' time or something so that they build up a case. I wouldn't have turned up anyway at that time. But while I'm on bail for this attempted murder, I go into a place called Pete Lee in the Royal Arms in Pete Lee. Rough area, or it was, it's changed now. And I remember I used to sell ecstasy tablets. There used to be the Mitsubishi Triangle things. And I remember uh, going into this club. And when I went into the club, this, this lad who was, at the time, he, he was a bit handy and stuff, he pulled me aside. And what had happened is... Some people had told him a lie to get him involved, saying I'd done some proper dodgy, and it was to get him involved. If he used his head, he would have known. But I went to explain myself because he called me to the side and the puppy went, I want to work with you. And he was telling me, putting it on me, basically. And I remember sitting there and I went to explain myself. I thought, wait a minute, I don't have to explain myself to him. So I basically, I said, what you're going to do, blah, blah, blah. I had a bit of an argument. And he said something. I remember making the thing in my head. I remember looking to the side. 
and the whole club was silent. And I just remember thinking, we had weight there. You know, he's just pulled me up. If I walk away from this and don't do anything, it's going to look like I've backed down. So I thought to myself, going to have to kill him. Let these people in the pub know that you can't pull me up like this. You don't do this and get away with it so they can go off into the state and tell everyone. That's what I thought in my head. So I, I, as I'm making this choice, he said the wrong thing. All I heard was these words. You want to mess about with the big boys, do you? That was all I heard. I snapped, put my face into his face, said, no, 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 no. I said, you're messing about with the big boys. I said, get outside. I said, I'm going to kill you. And he went, he, I got up, went out, and there was like steps on the pub. And I walked down, to this, down getting ready for him, and he never come out. So I thought, I'm buzzing, he's back down. Walk back up to the steps to see why he hadn't come out. And there's a family from around there all stood in front of him. Some of them handy in that as well. And they were saying, don't go out there. He means what he says. Don't, he'll try and kill you, mate. Don't go out. And he's going, no, i kill him. out the way. And they're trying to stop him for ages. And eventually I heard the dad say, leave him, Alan, leave him. He's been warned. You've warned him. It's all you can do. And then I just remember the, the lad who I know stepping aside. And he tried to even grab him, say, he tried to grab him as he was going out to say, don't go out, mate, I'm telling you. I went down the steps a little bit, waited, got a nine-inch kitchen blade ready, wait for the door to open. And as it opened, I just turned around and stuck the knife straight through his body, straight through. And all I remember is just hearing like a... And then I looked and I actually went to stab him again because I... Even though I saw the knife go in, this is crazy. I always even though I saw the knife go in, I pulled it out, I heard the noise, but there was no blood at first. And I thought, I missed them. And I went to do it again. And as I went to do it again, it was just like a like a tap. It just went from nothing to just literally the, the steps was it was like it was a tap on, and he just dropped. Um and I thought, yes, I've got him. And then two lads jumped off the steps as I come back. One pulled out a knife, another one pulled out a knife. And I'm as I'm trying to go for him, he's trying to come in and stab me. And as I'm turning for him, he's trying to come in and stab me. So I'm in the standoff. And then I thought to myself, because one of them was sort of sat forward and coming in with his head, like as if he, he was coming in forward with his head like that. And I thought, I can get him in his temple. So as I went to go for him, He's come in just like I planned, just like I thought. And as he did, I just swam, just right round as hard as I can with all my might. Like, and he just got his head back. And I, I just heard him go, sack that. He said, he means business him. Because if that had hit him and he didn't get his head, it would have went straight through his temple. It would have went straight through the side, straight through his head. The, the might and the power. And then I just remember then, uh, them saying that and then they walked off and I remember all these lasses running up because he pushed me back saying Shane leave it and I started going into my little mental health zone because he pulled a knife on me and it made me mad you can't do that to me I, I, and I was shouting I want you now more than I want them you're dead when I when I get a hold of you I'm going to murder you no one pulls a knife out of me ah! and that, they had to keep pushing me and pushing me and pushing me till they got me halfway down the street and then someone shouted police and I was off. 
So now I'm on police bail for attempted murder. I'm now on the run for attempted murder. So I couldn't get a job, but at the time I'd never had a job in my life, so I wouldn't go out, you know. But I couldn't go and sign on, because the police know exactly where I was, so I went on the run. And you need money. And so did some dodgy stuff. I taxed a few good mates, which are one of the, for me, uh, now when I think back, it's something I totally regret, something I, I wish I never did. But at the time, I was so in the zone, so lost, so on the run for two attempted murders. I had no choice but to get money. So I got some money, taxed some, a few people, some drug dealers, got the money, and then I went to um, I went to a, a place outside, just outside of County Durham, and on the down low, paid for a landlord so you could sort of put me in a house but not on the record so I, I stayed there for a good few weeks and I was on the run but the place were it was unbelievable I'd never seen it in my life in that area how they, they were blocking off the whole area with cars and these I just remember one day I was in a garden sleeping in the bush and on the morning we got up and at the bottom of the street I just saw these not the normal police vans what you see like big ones with, like, I've never seen them before with cages on the front and stuff. And they, like, it was, I've never seen them. And then it was like, I saw one. Everyone, someone went, please. So I put my head down. Then I saw another one. Then I saw another one. Then I saw another one. Then I saw, like, loads of police cars. They blocked off the full estate, all entrances and that, put the police round. And then the, I just saw... Police afterwards with riot stuff and that marching down the street in, in like as if they were in an army. And I was thinking, oh, they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna bash me when they get hold of me. I'm gonna get a proper good kick in here. And then everyone was ringing me saying, Shane, just raided me house. People I didn't even know were just barging in the houses. And if anyone had any uh, pictures of me, they were running in, just smashing the 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 glass and that, taking the picture of me out and just going back out and going. And I realised then they, want, they wanted me. And so I was just on the run, on the run, on the run, until finally they caught me, sleeping in the car, actually. They were doing patrol at the night, you know, when the windows steam up, because I should have kept the window down a bit so it didn't steam up. But the windows steamed up, so the, they got me, really, and I went to jail. But now... I'm going to jail as a totally, totally different person. Now I'm going to prison with even more hatred for the system, an even bigger feeling of loneliness, and a feeling of uh, not caring. Didn't care if I got a life sentence, didn't care what happened to me. I just thought, just, just make a scene, sack it, just go in there, no, not, don't let anyone mug you off. So I went into North Island this time. And I don't know if you remember the Bradford uh, riots, what happened? Yeah. In 2000, around about 2001 or something. Well, they all came, all the, the Asian lads came to North Island. And that caused, like, proper disturbance. Well, on one of the occasions, I remember a lad uh, from Sunderland, uh, Ross Jenkins, Rossy he's called. Uh, game is a badger, the lad. Proper, like... Now it's special, none of us, but like he's one of them who, if you say, Oh, you're up for a ride, he's like, How oh, than I am. You know what I mean? If you're his mate and you've got his back, he's got your back. 
he'll stand and fight with you with 10 people. That's what he was like in jail. Well, I remember him coming up to me on the, on the yard and it was this big, massive Asian lad. And he was stood over there with a few lads. He come over, he said, have you got me back, mate? So I'm going to this lad out. So we went over and he nearly had a scrap with him and that. And he was making him flinch. Well, now then you think you're tough and stuff like that. And then there was another moment when the lads were winding me up. I didn't play pool. But the lads, right, when they basically, what they did is they, they, come, they come to me saying, oh, look, they've took our pool table. And we used to, the North East lads used to have that pool table. And they think we're mugs and all that. But they're all coming to me. <laughs> they're all coming to me. And so I, I said, oh, Lee, they got into my head. And I said, leave for me, I'll sort it out. Walked over, picked up a pool cue, went to smack it across his head. But he put his hand up, so I snapped his wrist. Um, all the other lads, because the plan was once I did that, they all kick, kick off with the other lads and they start fighting and battling with all them. So that's what they did. The, the officers, screws, officers, didn't even see me do it. And they basically walked, ran past all them who were actually fighting. And I was stood in the doorway and come and grab me, grab me for a sec, left all them fighting. And that's what they did. That's how much they didn't like me. And then it was just constant incidences like that. Having a couple of fights with people, getting dragged down the sex. It's just in your offenders. Then I went to Home House Prison. Which, uh, is, when in, I went to which is in Middlesbrough, isn't it? Yeah. It's in Middlesbrough, yeah. I went to Home House Prison uh, and I just felt like we were messing about with me. I loved me gym at the time. I was a big, I was like a real, I was a lot bigger then. I was training a lot. And they just weren't letting me go to the gym and stuff like that. I'm just playing about for me. So I just remember one day, I thought, right, I pressed the buzzer. Because uh, they'll come, at the time, they used to come to the end of the week, shout gym, and you the, you press your buzzer in your cell, and then they would come and let, let you out if you pressed the buzzer. They weren't letting me out. So one day I pressed the buzzer and the officer come to the door and I said, uh, how can you not let me out for the gym? He went, oh, I'll make sure I'll let you out next time. So when the next time come, he didn't even come on me landing. I thought, I'm not having this. So I waited until he was on the landing. I pressed the buzzer, waited until he came up. And when he came up, he, I said, how come you never, you never opened your door? He went, oh, what a pity. I said, see you. I said, you're dead. I said, I'm going to kill you. He went, oh, whatever, I've heard it all before. I said, I'm telling you, I said, I'm going to kill you. I said, remember that? And then uh, he went, after a little argument, because he opened the door with other screws, officers and stuff, and he went. I set me plan and action straight away, sent a message down to me pal, and then went up to a few people. Went out in association, to where all the inmates gathered together, and, and stuff like that. And when all the inmates gathered together, it's like you can have showers, gym, play pool, go on the phone. I went up to one lad and I said, look, at it, go up to the screws because they can get off the wing at the end and they always sit there. So if anything kicks off, they can get off the wing and lock it off. And I just remember uh, going to the end of the wing, telling them, talk to the officers. When it all kicks off, jump in front of them gates so that them officers can't get off the wing. You need to do that. So... They went over and started talking to the officer. I went up to uh, another lad, Robert Foley from Pete Lee, and I said, right, chuck screw, chuck the pool balls at the screws. I said, so he comes running over here. I said, and then I'll deal with the rest. He was like, oh, I don't know. I, don't. I said, just do it. Chuck the pool balls at the screws. And I said, all right, then I will. 
So he just did game as I was buzzing. And uh, I stepped back and he had a big, massive glass coffee jar. What, you know, it was quick, quick at hand. And I was waiting with that in the towel. And he started chucking the pool balls. The screw got up, got up, went to get off the wing. The inmates jumped in front of him. And then they basically they couldn't get off the wing. So he pulled his bat on and ran towards the inmate who was chucking the pool balls. And at that point, I pulled out the coffee jar, smashed the bottom off, ran up to him and stabbed him three or four times. Um, another officer come um, and I stabbed him as well. Oh, I was alleged to rob because I don't know what happened after that. You know, when you go into a frenzy and everything blacks out and you just, I just remember the stabbing the first officer a couple of times, um, which I regret. I do. I mean, it's it's a hell of a story, and you know, you know, from your perspective, it, it's a story of trauma at the beginning, a journey into crime, and then you know, working your way through the system. And I mean, that really, that story there is is like it's the pinnacle, isn't it? It's the it's the it's the life changing moment now, I guess, because you must be sitting back now. You know, looking at it, looking at an increase on your sentence, thinking there's no way out. I'm on a vicious circle here. You know, what was the, what was the eureka moment for you? And, and what way the when I changed or yeah, the change, the, the yeah. change, the, the change of this cycle. Well, because I think, and, and I've had other inmates on here. I was speaking to Ray Gilbert on a podcast um, recently, where you know he had a big miscarriage of justice in in his particular case. But he, like many others who I've had on the show, have have said that it's a vicious circle. It's a cycle. It's a cycle you can't get off because. There is no rehabilitation in prison. There is no there is no help in prison. And when you get out of prison, there's no help when you come out. You've got to try and help yourself. And, and even those who try to help themselves find themselves getting stamped on by the system because it suits the system to for you for you to fail and go back in there because it's all about money and, and making money for the and keeping the prison system going. So how did you get off that that horrendous rat run that you found yourself on? Well, well. First of all, it was years and years of going through the seg. I was on um, what they call CSC. It's where you go from in the CSC cells, close supervision circuit, and you're going from one seg to the next seg to the next seg to the next seg. Which is what Ruth Charlie Harrison. Salvador finds himself on now, of yeah. course. Uh, constant battling, constant fighting the system, and the hatred is even worse. Well, I remember one day I was in there, uh, I think it was Franklin. Uh, and when I was in there, or another, well, I can't remember, I was just moving about all over, you, you forget. And I, but I remember the screws coming and saying, Shane, you've been good for over a week now. Tell you what, you'll be good another two weeks and we'll make sure we get you moved. And I was like, all right then. But I thought they were blagging because I just thought they were just saying it. But after a couple of weeks, the, the van come and they took me to Parkhurst on the Isle of Wight. So I went there and it was like a chance. But then I ended up getting I ended up getting involved in selling heroin and that in there with a lad from Gateshead. And we basically were just, I loved it, all extra canteens. I was getting steroids, it was just mint. I just absolutely loved it. But what happened was I met a lad called, I think it was Robert Bull or Ronald Bull. And he was an old man, and I just remember him coming up to me. And he was like, Jesus is real, he'll set you free and all that. And I just thought, what an absolute plump of you, man. Get away from me. 
know what I mean? And I, I used to get a bit mad in our conversations. But out of all the conversations, one of the conversations he said to me, it puzzled me, so it made me question, like, think about this. He said, I've been in, he's a lifer, he said, I've been in prison for years and years. He said, I'm probably never going to get out again. And he pointed at his chest and he said, but I'm free. Now, my logic at the time was, you're in prison for the rest of your life. You're probably never getting out. How is that freedom? That means you're locked up. I just couldn't register what he was saying. But it made me question, what, what's he on about? And then after that, I ended up uh, putting a hit on a prison officer for 10 bag, uh, 20 bags of heroin. And it was 10 paid and 10 to be paid when he'd done it, get it down the seg. But what he'd done is he took the first 10, which I'm an idiot, I should have known anyway. Uh, he took the first 10, um, had a good night and kept it and then went off the wing. And I knew then I was getting dragged down the seg, went down the seg, went on my dirty protest and kicked off. Ended up getting, to cut it short, I ended up getting shipped to, is it, I think it's Long Larton is the one with the electric doors on the night where you can press your buzzer and the doors can open on the night, I think. It's because it's got no toilets or it didn't have no toilets and sink. I think it's Long Larton in Worcestershire. And I remember being in there, I was in there a couple of weeks and uh, they opened my door and said, uh, basically go to the education. And so when I got to the education department, they said, oh, your name's not here. You'll have to go back to yourself. And so I'm like, well, you made me come all the way down here. And I made a fuss and I started arguing with them. And one of the officers just stepped back and he went, go to the chaplaincy. And so I got through and I was just buzzing. Didn't have to go back to myself. So I went in and I walked into the chaplaincy. And there was a circle of lads around this table with this like grey-haired posh guy who, hello, do you know, on the video. And I just remember sitting down watching and I sat down and I thought, oh man, it's one of them things. So I'm thinking in my head, how am I going to, because of watching the video, I didn't want to just get up. And So I'm sat there and I'm thinking, as soon as the video stops, I'm gone. And so as soon as it stopped, the little woman's straight away is like, what's your name? And I said, oh, give her my name. I said, oh, your name's not here. Oh, you shouldn't be here. I was like, oh, well, I'll go then. But as I was going to get up, one of the lads went, she you get strawberry gattos and biscuits and everything. I went, miss, can you keep my name down? And so I started going on the course just for that. I wanted to get out myself and have some, like, strawberry gatto and stuff, which, if you've been to prison, <laughs> that's good. And then I kept going. And I was arguing, and, 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 and I, I would argue and debate, like, oh, you're all nutters and that. But there was respect everything I said. It's called an alpha course thing. And I just remember... Going on, going on. But then my mindset started to change because I was hearing things like, no matter what you've done in life, as long as you repent and give your life to God, you can be forgiven. And it doesn't matter what you've done because according to the Bible, everyone's a sinner and we all deserve to go, like, basically, we can never reach God's standards. And I was like, but I've nearly killed people. Like, how can, because my logic of Christ, Christianity and God before then was like the religious part of it. No, you've got, a, you've got this long list of things you've got to do. And until you've done them, you're holy. That's not what the Bible even preaches, by the way. That's just religion. That's what religion does. The Bible doesn't preach that. But so I'm hearing this stuff. So it was opening me up. And then one day, you have a day, what, you dedicate to the Holy Spirit. Um, 
they have a day what they dedicate their Holy Spirit day. And I got called to go over and never expected an out, prayed for me. And I always get a little upset here because it was the beginning of like my life, um, totally changing at this minute. And it always, I'm reminded every time I give my story, is I just remember going in and I went and I'm sad. He said, come back on the afternoon. And I went back on the afternoon and he, he, he sat me down in a chair and he, um, he started praying for me and he said, um, we're there. Uh, he prayed for me and he was just saying, um, he said to me, pray. And I just remember praying and saying, God, I hear who I am. I hear who I'll become if you're ready come to my life. Please just do something. Because I just had nothing in me. And I just remember sitting back after we'd prayed and I just started to feel this energy feeling in my stomach. And it started to raise up and raise up and then it just shot up my body. And I just sobbed and sobbed and cried and cried. And I just knew. It was like I knew God was real. I just knew. And from that moment on, I was just running around the prison. I got nicknamed Dot of EastEnders, God Squad, Bible Basher. But I was, I didn't care. I was running about like I'm suffering for Jesus and up off my head, really. And I thought I'd lost it. But it was that much of an impact on my life that the number one governor, never done this because they were enemy to me at one point. I'd, I'd, I'd always see them behind shields and flipping helmets and stuff. But I remember the number one governor after I'd become a Christian, it like called the meeting and there was this big long table and when I went on the meeting there was a number one governor at the other end there was like social services probation other faiths uh whatever else other agencies are in the prison system the security the head of the prison and he just said right we've been looking at your files you're out in a year um do you think you'll come back and that was it I'm sat there for about 15 minutes preaching, telling them Jesus is real. And uh, they must have all been planning to ask me a question because in the end, one of them, basically, one of them said, uh, the office, the governor, sorry, he said, oh, do you want to, um, anyone have any questions? And I went, no, you're all right. Because I've been preaching about Jesus. I ran on the wing. And you know what? I'm no longer, it's almost like, can you imagine like, all your life you think you're right, and all of a sudden, overnight, um, the realisation of your mistakes and what you've done and the, the wrongs you've done and the people you've hurt, but then what you've done suddenly hit you all at once because you've never had them emotions before. And so now them emotions of, like, I don't know what you call it, but just sorrowfulness for what you've done. And I just remember, I just, I, I, I cringe. Um, yeah, I cringe at, at my past. 
And, and that's great. I mean, you can see, you can see. And, and that's why I've just let you talk. That, that, that's what a podcast is about for me, Shane, to hear your story. It's not about me. And that emotion is real. You can see that you've changed. You can see that you've repented for what you've done and you've found God. And, and, and that, is a, that is a huge turnaround for somebody who, you know, a few years earlier had been walking around with knives and, you know, willing to, you know, looking to kill people and didn't care. And, and that's a hell of a journey. And it's, Shane, it's the trauma that you went through. And it's not, that's not, not your doing, nothing that you can ever, you can ever change, unfortunately. But what you can do is you can change your path. And that's what you've done. And you've done it with the help of God. And to hear that is, it's a fascinating journey and it's a fascinating story. And that's why I'm honored to have you on my show because people can see that it's real. People can see that it's genuine. And um, I, I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that some people who watch this or or kids maybe going down the same path who you know are potentially tempted by going into into that life of crime which they see is glamorous. The thing is something which is you know something to be proud of. The thing that can make an easy book by selling ecstasy or 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 you know green or or heroin or whatever. It's not glamorous. And although I have made you know money out of selling books or writing books about various criminals etc i'm always one who points to that you know that it's not big and it's not clever and that people like yourself coming forward time and time again can only help and you know you people like you should be allowed to go out to schools and, and and you should be able to you know go and speak to the youngsters i've done it myself and i'm not a criminal i'm somebody who has gone to schools and talked to underperforming kids uh, kids who don't see school as a as anything worth worth sticking in with and and ultimately i, I you know i know that they've listened and you know i've had reports back from schools where they've gone eight or nine of the kids who weren't sticking in have listened to your story and, and they've changed. And, and honestly, it's, it's great to see, Shane. I, I, you know, I hope you're proud of what you've achieved, man. I am. Well, that's it's been good. Hard, it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's not been easy, but where I am now, I just, I've got to pinch myself, really. You've got to, you're a, a family a man as well. You're a family man. How did you turn yeah. around when you came out of prison? I mean, because that was, that's the next hard thing. You find God in prison. But when you come out, like I mentioned earlier, they don't make it easy for you, do they? Especially when you're coming off the, the unit. They don't, but I was just so full of faith in God and I just trusted that God had me back. I didn't go for help off anybody. didn't have any help off anybody. Just God just just did what he did and he just did great things. I ended up even working in the prison, going in, doing an alpha course myself in the actual prison where I stabbed the, the, the screws. I've actually, uh, and I, I like to say this because I, I always want to give credit to the officer for even being able to do it, but one of the officers are stabbed. They allowed me to go back into the home house and uh, I, I don't want to mention his name just in case he doesn't want it to be mentioned because it's not for me to do. But the officer, uh, they rang, rang and he come up and I didn't know if this was going to happen. And then the door opened, it was him. And I was like, I just got up and I was like, look, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry for what I've done. Uh, can you forgive me? And uh, he said, yeah, I forgive you. And um, uh, for someone who's not a Christian as well, to do that, to be able to do that, he was a sworn enemy, both of us. Uh, I even heard that, he, I think he went against his own family wishes because they didn't want him to do it as well. I'm not sure if that's right, but, um, and, and I just remember like being dead apologetic for him and saying, look, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I remember one point where we had a laugh, because I'd known you just so over-apologetic every two minutes, I'm sorry for what I've done, 
And uh, at one point I went, I'm sorry for what I've done. I wasn't in the right frame of mind. He went, tell us about it. You know, we both burst out laughing and we had a joke, we had a coffee. And when I was going into the, do the alpha course for the prisoners, the prisoner would come in and say, oh, officer such and such, send me guards and hopes you do well and stuff like that. And it was just blows me away and say, to me, only God can sort of do this kind of stuff. He's done things that is unbelievable, like changing people's hearts who I never think would be. He's, he's had me going in schools, colleges. I've had people message me saying, oh, my son's now past his degrees and yeah, you 10 years ago. Thank you so much because he was getting into bother and he was always getting into trouble and he's going to jail. But he heard your story. I sat and talked to one of them and I told him what I'm saying and told him the truth. Said he'd come home a totally different person, and, and now he's passing the degrees. See that alone for me is enough. I know loads of people give their lives to God over it. Was that probably worse lives than me, some of them. Uh, and I just thank God um, because I've got a pit. I don't feel like I deserve this. Just does that make sense? Of Why course it does. Of course it does. But it, it and and you know you're clearly not that kind of person who will blow your own trumpet. And I think that's right. I think I think people who are egotistical, people who are narcissists will clearly blow their own trumpet. It's, it's all about them. You you are you're not that kind of person. And and I'm not, you know, you nobody blows their own trumpet. Nobody pats themselves on the back and nobody expects that kind of thing. Nobody expects to be rewarded or congratulated, but you deserve it. And it's it's for people like me who listen to your story or who read your story, because obviously you've got a book out um, and the link for your book is below. And it, it really is, you know, that's, that's how you, how you accept it. And, and I know, as I say, I can hear you. You're not somebody who, who is doing it for that. You're doing it. You've done it for yourself. You've changed your life. You've turned yourself around. But I know exactly what you mean about, you know, hearing a story of, of some some kid who's turned his life around because he's listened to you. It's fun. There's nothing more rewarding than that. Yeah. It, 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 you know, it, and I think I think as you get older, Shane, I mean, I'm 50 this year uh, and I, I look at it and think it's life changing experiences. It's things that happen. And, and, and it's, it's, it's age that essentially brings you to, to, to different conclusions, Shane. I'm, I'm not sure about you, but it's it's, it's a maturity and, and I also think the responsibility of being a parent as well. I think that yeah. plays a part. Yeah, it gives you patience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a few more than I have, but I mean, I've got two. And I know how hard it was with two youngsters running around the house. But but ultimately, I think the responsibility of being a parent is a bit of a wake-up call for, for us all. I, I, well, yeah. We're coming towards the end of the podcast. I, I've got to ask you about Charlie Salvador, a.k.a. Charlie yeah. Brunson, a.k.a. Michael Peterson. As, as you know, a good friend of mine, somebody who I visit, when COVID restrictions allow on a regular basis, we speak, you know, you usually two or three times a week. I've, I've been helping him um, along with Richard Booth and Gemma Fernandez, you know, to get ready for his um, public parole hearing, which happens in September 2022. And, you know, from, from his perspective, it's been a long, long journey. But I mean, you know, you were actually you were actually in the same prison as him at one point. Did you did you have any did you have any, uh, you know, meetings with him? Did you ever see him, ever speak to him? No, so what can I, and Charlie will tell you this explanation of this is, when you're on CSC close the vision circuit and you're going from sec to sec, you're literally going from the CSC cells, which have got like the, they put like a box, metal box on it, un, unattached one, put it in. It's not like normally, if they open your door, you have to be six to seven, mufti unlock with the officers and stuff. 
But I was just going from prison to prison. So I was Franklin, Full Sutton, Long Larton, Whitemore. Then I went into Wakefield. Uh, Charlie and Levine in the, the other, because there's two sides. So in Wakefield is a seg. And then at the end of this, the seg, the, the next stage is like that you open a door and then they've got like a cage, another cage door on the inside so they can open the outside door and then you've got a cage. And then you've got the other side, which is where Charlie and that was, which is where I think he's in a cage, basically. <laughs> I think there's a cage within that room, I don't know. But I was definitely on what they call CSC, close supervision circuit. But that's, Charlie was in the actual prison within the prison kind of thing. But I was in, where was it? And I don't know if he'll, he'll, he'll remember this, but you could ask him. But I just turned up in, I think it's Long Run, and he not long after left because he was, he went up into the showers and he refused to come out and they proper, proper smashed him up. They proper beat him up. Uh, ask him about that, if, he, if he'll tell you. He'll say, do you remember being in Long Larton? And when you're in Long Larton, uh, you refuse to come out of the showers and the screws proper took liberties on you and the proper smashed you up. Uh, he should be able to remember it. And I think it was Long Larton uh, that I'd just come in. But what happens is, and ask Charlie, when you're going from segregation to segregation on CSC, you're basically going from seg to seg, seg to seg. I never saw anybody put the six screws or seven screws in Rye Gate Road my door, and I would be fighting them and battling with them because they, they, they can be horrible. Uh, and so, yeah, that's how I, that's the only way like I can say about Charlie, but... I think every time I do a story at some point, they always do a paperclip and chuck us on. And then what I've noticed is that it always seems to come around when he's due for parole. He's due for a parole and suddenly, almost oh, dangerous prisoner stabs screws in with Charlie Bronson. And I just think there's a bit of a political, I don't know if it's is right, but like I just think there's something political about it because they've done it about two or three times now with me, and little linking someone's name with stamp prison guards, Charlie Bronson, just mentioning that name and linking it together is going to affect his parole, and yeah. I think that's what I think that's why. I think that's why it gets done. Really you're, on, do. you're on the money there. They, they used to do the same with the craze. Uh, you know, that whenever Reg's parole was up, there was always a story. Um, you know, that was that was linked to the craze. Was was leaked to the papers, released in the papers. Something went out there. Something was put out put out there. And and I've always said, and I, you know, we'll never be able to prove it now. But I've read the depositions. I've read the paperwork. When Charlie Cray was convicted of a seventy-eight million pound cocaine sting, um, Reggie Reggie reached his thirty-year life tariff and you know he was you know it, it was clearly to besmirch the crane name and to get yeah. 
get Charlie off the street. And, you know, they gave Charlie a death sentence. And, and, and as it happens, they both passed away in the same year. But yeah, you're right. That kind of thing does go on. There is no doubt about it. And, you know, I, look, it's a big year for Charlie. Am I, am I convinced he's going to get out this year? No, but it's a step in the right direction. And he's, you know, he's, he's got his mindset on it. He's behaving, he's, he's keeping his head down. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping for more positive things for Charlie moving forward. So finishing off, you know, the Alpha course really changed your life. Um, you know, a period of a period of good behaviour. Um, you know, saw you get out and and you moved back to Middlesbrough, and now yeah. you know you know obviously you released the, the successful book, um, and, and now you literally spread the word of God. Yeah, that's all I do. That's all I try. Like you know, don't, again, you know, the last year I've been going through a bit of a proper struggle, so I've been on the back burner for a bit. But I think God will. God will I'll overcome, help me to overcome it. And when he does, I'll be the strongest person I'll ever be in my life. And I, and I think that's what it's going to do. And it's going to make me more bold and more bold to go out and do things for God. Because in my head now, I just, all I want to do is just tell people God's real. And it's almost like you have a frustration. You know, when you know something's real in your own heart, in your own head, well, like people just laugh or they just think it's a joke and you just think... You just think, nah, please, you need to listen. I'm not lying about what happened to me in jail. I had that experience. God's real. One day you're going to stand in front of God. And like, and I just have this desperation to, to tell everyone that. And it's, uh, it's it, 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 if I go to go into any sin or struggle, that knowing what God did, I always go back to that experience I had. And it keeps me right. But then I have this longing. And I think, well, if you fail, then Satan's won, and, and that's what he wanted. And it keeps me, even though I'll go through a struggle, I all I do pray every day that God doesn't let me go back how I used to be, because I've got more to lose now. So if I've got more to lose and I decide to go down a crazy route, then I've got to, it's got to be worth, you've got to do something worthwhile. And that's what I think. And so I do pray, God, keep me right, keep me on the path, keep me strong, uh, because it's not easy. And, and when you're used to someone does something to you and your reaction is to kill them, and then all of a sudden someone does something to you and you've got to hold it in, that becomes an internal battle for you, what you've got to deal with. And so do you overcome that battle or do you let it win you? And that's where I'm at at the minute. But God's never let me down yet. And he never, he, I just know he's not going to. And I just pray and hope that he doesn't. And um, bring my kids up. My kids, I bring them up right. My wife. Um, and then I'm just going to carry on, try my best to preach God and bring as many people. And you know what? I think in some, some circumstances you go in, people are looking at your reaction. And when they see, like your reaction's a good one, it shocks them and it makes them realise that the change is real because a lot of people don't believe it, even though it's been 15, 20 years or something of, of change and, and going in prisons and trying to help people. But I just want to leave, if, if you don't mind, like leave one message really for people as like, I am not joking. I was the last person to believe in God. I, I, I just thought people who believe in God was just nutters and deluded. But I promise you, I promise you on that day, 
when I prayed, God came into my life. And if there's anybody out there who needs God, I hope and pray that when you listen to this, if you're struggling in a criminal life, you think there's no way out. If you're struggling with drugs and you think there's no way out, cry out to God, pray to him, and go and find the church, as much as it sounds crazy, and let someone help you. Stop being stubborn. I'm not going to church. I'll, I won't look tough. The reality is we all have a mask. If we hide ourselves behind a mask, it's tough, but we've all... We're all weak inside. We all want to change. We all don't want to be stuck in the messes that we're in. And I'm telling you, if you direct your life to, towards God in the name of Jesus Christ, you'll start to change your life beyond your belief. If you can do it for me, you can definitely do it for you. Definitely. Jim Taylor, it's a positive message. It's a strong message. And it's a great message to end on. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Steve.